You're listening to the Passion and Perspective podcast brought to you by Sporting Chance Media and supported by the Western Weekender. For three decades, Penrith and the Blue Mountains have turned to the Western Weekender. Visit westernweekender.com.au or find your copy every Friday. Here is your host, Jonathan Robinson-Lees. Glenn Lydiard grew up in Warrington with three older siblings and a love for the great outdoors. A chance encounter at the age of 16, following his older brother David to England, saw Glenn become the youngest ever professional rugby league player in the UK, debuting alongside his brother and going on to play 28 top flight games that season. Despite adversity of the highest order throughout his career, Glenn has maintained a clear perspective, always placing family as his priority and paving the way for his three sons, Tyron, Jara and Eli. A proud Beeropai man, Glenn now works as the Indigenous Welfare Officer at the Penrith Panthers and plays a crucial role in developing players on and off the field. Glenn joins us for the latest episode of the Passion and Perspective podcast. Glenn, welcome to the Passion and Perspective podcast. Thanks, John. It's good to be here, mate. Glenn, you grew up in Warrington, which is a suburb in Penrith. What was your childhood like? Uh, it was a good childhood. I've got um, two older brothers and an older sister. I've got an Indigenous mother and a, my father is Australian. was born in Western Australia and joined the Army when he was young and fought in Korea and come home, met mum. They moved out to the Western suburbs and um, I was born in Nepean Hospital. We sort of grew up at Warrington, St Mary's, yeah, pretty much all my life. And having older siblings there, was there an element of like play and adventure and freedom to your childhood? Oh, definitely, mate. There was nothing for me to be able to jump on my bike from here and Warrington and ride to Nepean River for the day and jump off the bridge there half a dozen times, go down to the mud baths, which were down in, for people of my age would know what I'm talking about, down in the Nepean River there was a heap of mud you could go and jump in and um, as long as I was home before the lights uh, were on, there was never a, a problem, yeah. And is that element of freedom, is that something you try and instill in your kids now as well? Um, I try to, maybe not so much doing that. Um, I know my wife is also pretty protective with today's society. I think it's a lot different to what it was when I was growing up. And we were only just talking about this this morning, how we were coming back from Penrith just um, from getting a coffee. And there was a park in Penrith. And my wife said, I, as a kid, me and her brother used to go and go into that park and play all the time. And her grandmother would be up the road where she said, we would never let our kids do that now unless we were there because we just... With today's society, you just don't know who to trust and, and who not to, yeah. So um, we try to take our kids away and like just not long ago we went out bush and, and do things out there where you can just let them run. But in the city, I'm a little bit worried, yeah. And what role did your, your parents play as, as role models for you? Um, well, as I said, I've grown up in a family with um, my mum being Indigenous and my dad being Australian. My mum... They always have these stereotypes about Aboriginal people where I've never seen my mum drink a drink of alcohol in life and bloody is a swear word to this day in my in mum and dad's house. So I've never seen mum and dad drinking or doing anything bad. I mean, we we weren't rich, but we were rich because we had a lot of love in the in the family. That's what, how we looked at it. So just brought up with respect and, and morals and treat people how you want to be treated. And was the connection to culture, was that something that was instilled in you at a young age? Always. Um, see, with my mum, she grew up in an era where um, she wasn't allowed to go to school. Where she, when she went to school, the kids at the school would all pick on the Aboriginal kids because she said that they'd be all eating sandwiches and she'd had a possum. Her and her sister would have a possum just outside the school grounds. They had to go and eat possum or whatever they caught. So they were still eating bush tucker and that when she was at school and the kids would pick on them because they're over there eating the possum and the other kids have got their Vegemite sandwiches. And mum said, and because of the government at the time with the stolen generation and that, they would never stay in one place for too long. So um, her life was growing up was trapping rabbits. So they were everywhere there was rabbits, they'd go there and, and trap them and sell them to the chillers. And so mum at an early age, from the age of 10, her and her sister would go out with 30 rabbit traps, set them, sleep in an old barn or whatever was around the place or under a tree and then in the morning get up and go and check them all and whatever they caught, bring them back. So at 10 years of age, like I tell Tyron and my boys, imagine if you said, there's no way, I wouldn't even be able to do it now, I'd be too scared, but that's just what they did. So 
in a way, mum lost a bit of her culture with the, the language and everything, but just living out there and eating witchy grubs and, and like possum and whatever you can catch is something that I've always liked to go and do and also take the boys out and show them how to do it because that makes you feel like you're, you're a real black fellow, I think, anyway, yeah. And so that's important for you to make sure you're passing that through the generations as well? Yeah, definitely. Um, we just, only two weeks ago, I took me middle boy out to a place called Tumla, out, um, out near Bogabilla, it's out past, near Gundawindi, and we lived on the riverbank there for five days, just fishing, um, yeah, catching the fish, eating them, cooking them straight away, making Johnny cakes, which we call them Johnny cakes, they're like little dampers, you know, just everything was cooked over the, the hot coals, and yeah, I loved it. When we were coming home, we went back, they call it the mission there, to the community where you and McGrady was from, where I was talking to you about before, and I said to him, come on, we've got to, he said, Dad, can I just come home with these followers? And I said, mate, if I went home and told your mum that I left you back out there on that mitch, she'd kill me, mate. So, yeah, he loved it as well, and as I said, as a kid, I used to do all that sort of stuff, like cratching crayfish out of the dams and things like that. It just makes you, yeah, any, any young kid would love to do it, Aboriginal or non-Aboriginal. And I think, Glenn, that's the irony of society where we're at because because of technology and everything these days, people are wanting to get back to the connection to land, but for tens of thousands of years, Aboriginal people have been doing that already. Yeah, as you said, for tens of thousands of years. While we're out there as well, there's, um, one of the, the elders of the place we're at took us out to some caves which had an Aboriginal art on them and, and that. And the thing is, we've grown up in the city and I always tell these young Indigenous boys I work with at, at Panthers and that, how lucky they are to live out in the bush. They all go, oh, mate, we come from a place where there's 100 people. I go, but you're out in the bush all the time. You, you fish every day. You go and collect food. and well, We miss out on that. You still know a bit of your language. In the city, we miss out on all that sort of stuff. So my kids like Tyron and, and Jira and little Eli, if I sent them out in the bush to try to get a food, they'd starve, mate. They'd be looking for Uber Eats or, or um, ring, go, where's the closest McDonald's, Dad? But there's nothing out there. That's how them followers live. But the, what, what surprised me as well is like, there's not much out there, but every one of them's happy. They all get on good, life's like just out hunting and gathering sort of thing is you could just imagine back in the day, like thousands of years ago, where the men would go and get the food and the women would sorry, collect the berries and all that sort of stuff. It was there always would have been laughter and, and happiness doing that sort of stuff where I think, yeah, we miss a lot of that being from the city, yeah, we don't get to do that stuff, which I'd I regret, yeah. Glenn, you first played rugby league at the age of four. Do you recall that feeling the first time you had ball in hand, you're running around kicking and passing the footy? I'll tell you a little story about that one. Yeah, um, as I said, I've got a brother, David Lydiard, who played for Parramatta back in the day when Peter Sterling and like, when they won three grand finals. He won a grand final in 83. I've got another brother who was a very good footballer too, probably the better, best one in the family, but hurt himself when he was young and his knees were never any good Like compared to the operations today. Back then, you were pretty much finished. Well, they told me my first year in rugby league was that I, the, the game would be up the other end and I'd be in the middle of the field building sandcastles. So they were very embarrassed about, yeah, I was supposed to be the brother of like these other followers who were good. And while the game's up the other end, I'm in the middle of the field where they do the kickoff building sandcastles. So it was, it was embarrassing for them. But the next year I did, I come good. And yeah, I, um, I think we won the grand final that year, it was under sevens. And from then on, I just, I wasn't a big kid or anything, but um, I, I sort of had a football brain. I knew how to get around the field and, yeah, it wasn't, um, I, it wasn't through I was fast or big or anything, but I knew how to read a game, so that sort of helped me, yeah. And did you have ambitions at that kind of under-sevens age to play professionally? Did you want to make it and play for either, you know, the Panthers or Parramatta yeah. or anything? well, there's another story with that as well. I've, my first cousin's the name of a bloke called Ray Blacklock. He played for Penrith. He won the first grand final. Penrith ever won in under-23. He was a captain of that team. He also played for Newtown in the 81 grand final against Parramatta, which Parramatta's first ever grand final. So growing up, he, we just, the whole family just idolised Bundy, we call him, yeah, Ray. And that's what I wanted to do was follow in Ray's footsteps yeah, and say to be brother, but my brother ended up getting there as well. So then we all sort of followed him, you know what I mean? But I always had where I wanted to one day, which I think most young kids who do strap on the boots want to play in the NRL or the rugby league like, at a high level, yeah. And nowadays, Glenn Penrith, 
rugby league is a huge junior base, one of the biggest in the country. The biggest, yeah. Back back then, was it a big junior base then, or was it quite a small population playing? Um, it's still big, yeah. I think every young kid in the Western Suburbs always wanted to seem like play rugby league, and there wasn't too many other sports around that were popular anyway, like you had your soccer or rugby league. Even AFL wasn't even about back in them days, because I say to myself now, I would love to even had a crack at AFL too, because I love that game. I like watching it. I've got one of my other boys who plays at a pretty high level in the AFL as well. So, but it was just always rugby league, and yeah, just wherever I went, I had a football in my hand, like you know. And if I could round up a game at the front yard, well, that's what we do. We uh, get because of being also Aboriginal. I've got a lot of cousins, and I'm a little bit biased when it comes to um, rugby league. But I think the Indigenous players are very suited to rugby league. They're good players, like. So all my family, pretty much, there could have been 10 people who could have played NRL, I think, anyway, yeah, but just different things happen in life that they well, they never did. But, yeah, so I come from a big family of rugby league players, yeah. Why, why do you think that's the case, that a lot of these kids grow up with, with natural talent? Why do you think that's the case? I just think that we're just, yeah, we're gifted, I don't know, from, I suppose, from thousands of years ago, having to chase our own food and... And, um, you know, living off the land and just for some reason, and I think it goes even for the dark American people, um, they're very talented as well. We're fast and can just, uh, uh, it's not just rugby league, but you look at the AFL, I think a lot of the better players in AFL as well, like not so much the better players, but just the gifted ones where we'll put, pick a ball up from their toes or, you know, that little Blake's jumping twice as high as everybody else. They're just sort of freaky Things just like what JT could do and Greg Inglis. I mean, Greg o was a big boy, and that James Robinson always seems to be just that little um, X factor about him, yeah. And did you notice through your early teens, were there, did you have the interest of scouts and talent ID people checking you out, or for you, was it just out there playing footy for fun? Just, yeah, just out there playing for fun, and I think that's what we've lost at the moment with parents and everything. Like, as I said, I just played because of my teammates, so I loved. Having me, like I never, I stayed at the one club which was Colton. I, sorry, I did have one other year at Cambridge Park, but that's only just up the road. And Colton didn't have a team that season, so I stayed with them boys. And we weren't real good at the start, like we in third division or whatever it was, and slowly worked our way through. But we stuck together, and I think that's what it was all about back then. You know, I never had dreams in my head like probably kids do today of saying I'm going to make a lot of money out of playing football and. You know what I mean? Just whatever happened along the way, like those rep teams, I'd always trial and I never always made those sides at school and that was never big enough, I didn't think, or they just seemed to pick other people and it wasn't until I got about 15, 16 that things changed, yeah. And at the age of 16, you first played professional rugby league in England. Um, how did that come to fruition? Yeah, I'll tell you, that's a, yeah, that's a good story, that one. Um, as I said, my brother David played for Parramatta back in the days when they had all the gun side and um, won the grand final in 83. And back in those days, the rugby league was played in um, winter over in England, so it was our off-season here. So most, well, a lot of blokes would play out the, say, the NRL and then go straight from this season to England and play six months over there and get paid sort of twice for the year, which they do in the cricket as well. So um, my brother got a contract at a club called Oldham and part of that contract is that mum and dad actually got to come go as well. And my, my dad had been overseas with the army, but mum had, hadn't even been in a plane or I hadn't even been in a plane. Because I was only 15 at that time, I couldn't stay here on my own. So I had to go to England as well. So I finished up school in, I think it was October, a bit earlier, in year 10. And I went over there with my brother just to watch as well. Like part of the contract was... We all got to go over there too. So while I was over there, some of the people said, oh, does your brother, can he play? And my brother said, yeah, well, we'll put him in the, the local team. So the first game I played, it was like the kids went, compared to Australia, and they, they weren't much chop. So I sort of carved up the first game. And then the next week I come back to play again, and they must have knew that there's some Aussie kid playing because I got my head taken off about six times in that game. And mum was worried that every time I ran the ball, I had five blokes wanting to belt me and... So the actually a bloke called Frank Myler, he coached England and he also played for Great Britain. He's sort of like a legend over there. He was a Oldham coach. He said, well, we'll give you, they call it the A-team over there. It's a reserve grade side. We'll give you 10 quid a week if you want to play in the A-team. 
and get you away from playing all them young fellas who want to sort of kill you sort of thing. And I said, yeah, I said to mum, what do you reckon? She said, oh, I don't know, you're, you're a bit young. And I said, oh, I'm just turning 16. I said, I'll just go on the wing. And I usually played 5'8", that so she said, oh, well, you can go on the wing then. So I went on the wing. Well, that first game I played, I scored a hat trick on the wing. I think I was just running scared because I remember there was this big dark winger I was marking up against and he had muscles coming out of him everywhere. I'm just this little skinny black 16-year-old and, yeah, I ended up scoring three tries on him and that. And then the following week we got to train and then the Frank Myler came up and said, oh, mate, I picked you in first grade this week. And I thought, oh, no, we've got to ask your mum first. I was 16 and eight days or something, so I'm still the youngest ever to, to play over in England in the Super League. And um, mum said, yeah, no worries, you can worry, but we'll put him on the wing and your brother's in. And my dream was to play with my brother. He's eight years older than me, so I never thought I'd ever get to play in the same team as him sort of thing, you know. So, yeah, we've got to play with him as well. I ended up playing 28 first grade games that year, but... What the main thing was that we made the semi final of the Challenge Cup, so we went all the way through to one game off the the final going to Wembley. So yeah, well, part of that thing, as I said, I'm the youngest to play in a semi final too. Well, the actual Super League paid for me and my mum to go to Wembley and watch the grand final because it was like a, as a special guest because of being the youngest in the semi. Yeah, I scored a try in the first half and got knocked out in the second half. And we ended up not saying because of that, but we ended up losing only by a, a try, yeah. And otherwise, I could have been at Wembley playing as well. And did you that season, twenty eight first grade games as a sixteen year old? Did you feel like you'd made it? That you you had finally made it as an athlete, or did you know there was a lot of work? I to knew go? there was a lot to go. As I said, I was at that sixteen. I was marking blokes like Ellery Hanley, John Dorohy, who was an Australian legend, Les Boyd, playing against some big names and that over there. But I still never had the confidence that I was. Because I wasn't, I hadn't even started really doing weights or anything yet, and I was a skinny sixteen-year-old as well. I was tall, but I was uh, I was skinny. So when I come home, I went back to school. So I went back to year eleven because I only just finished year ten. So I went back to year eleven and um, made the Australian schoolboys in year eleven, and the tour that year was to England. So we ended up going back over to England, and because of while I was over there, I met a couple of young girls. When I was there, so I sort of had a little bit of a cheer squad when I went back with the Australian schoolboys and we had Bradley Clyde and Mark Soden and Andrew G and blokes like that who was in that Australian schoolboys side. So when we went back, yeah, the boys were all pretty happy that... You were the local celebrity. Yeah, had a few girls following us around and that. It was good, yeah. So we went back over there and then after that I come home and signed with Parramatta to play like grade, yeah. And that time, that first stint in England as a 16-year-old, how did you grow in both as a person and as, as a player? Um, well, I just learned to toughen up, I think. And I, I think I realised that, like, if you would have said to me, like, I've got a 16-year-old son now and we sit down and he spins out when he thinks about it, he said, Dad, that's like me playing now against men. He said, I don't think I could do it. I said, I don't really know how I did it, but I think of what it was, I didn't want to let anybody down, so... If that big follower was running at me, I would just put me... I ended up learning a tackle called the Cumberland Throw. Ray Price, he started it. It was sort of like more of a judo throw. Where you just get them, you use their momentum to bring them down, and that's how I sort of done most of me tackling. But I just didn't want to let nobody... And I had my brother in the team as well, so I didn't want to let him down, knowing that I'm only this age, but I've got to tackle. If they run over the top of me, well, they run over the top of me. I just got to at least be in in front of him. So I got knocked around a little bit, but I realised that I could probably maybe go do something with me football from then because, as I said before, that I never really made... I made the Harold Matts and SG Ball here at Penrith for that, but I wasn't ever the, the standout player or anything, and I thought, wait a minute, if I can actually mark Ellery Hanley and still go all right against him and that, maybe I might be able to make something out of this rugby league, yeah. This is the Passion and Perspective podcast brought to you by Sporting Chance Media. For three decades, Penrith and the surrounding community has turned to the Western Weekender. Whether it's the Weekender's highly revered print edition or its up-to-date news offerings through its digital presence, the Weekender truly is the heartbeat of Penrith. Visit westernweekender.com.au or find your copy every Friday. From there, you went on to play 69 New South Wales Rugby League, which is now the NRL um, yeah. appearances. How did you first land up 
the first land at the Parramatta Eels. Yeah, also as I said, my brother was played there and won a grand final and from probably 1979 to um, when I started in 87, we never, me, mum and dad never missed a game. My brother played. We travelled to Queensland for a trial. If Parramatta were trialling at the start of the year in Queensland, we would drive up there just to watch their son and my brother. Like, was a big thing in that team with Price, Crone and Kenny Sterling, Eric Graves, Steve Vella. Like, it's one of the greats. Oh, one of the best teams ever. So you always guarantee pretty much we're going to win games and, and always competing for grand finals. So we never missed a... And we'd go for the whole three grades. We'd get there at 11.30, set up in the same place where we were, were every time, take the food. And I knew every player from right through. So when I started in 87, um, yeah, I pretty much knew everybody anyway. And because of David at Parramatta, and well, I did speak to Penrith, but after playing them games in first, uh, first grade over there, I thought they what Penrith offered me to come back to Penrith was like they didn't think that was anything important like it wasn't an achievement or anything where Parramatta and it wasn't because of the money it was only a couple of dollars in it but I thought they actually got a bit of faith in me so I went to Parramatta yeah and what was your debut like who were you playing against and um, where was that we deb- I debuted against Manly in 88 it was yeah at um, Brookvale Oval and at that time I had um, John Maney was the coach he took over from Jack Gibson so um yeah, well, I, got, I scored on my debut, which was good. I think we got touched up in that game, but I always remember scoring on my debut here at Brookvale. Were you playing on the wing? On the day? wing I was, yeah. I was on the wing. So I thought, um, yeah, I went all right. I was worried. I was worried sick because always when you look at the other team, like when you're a young kid, you looked at the other team and thought, oh, he's a big fire. And, you know, when you weren't that big, you were always a bit worried. But then when you get to first grade, that you look at the other side and you see Chris Close and... Blokes who you just sort of like idolised a bit as well, and thinking that you've seen him running over the top of people before. You think, is this going? Am I going to be able to do it? But yeah, as I say, when you get out there, it's a different story. Yeah, you put your body on the line. And what was that whole experience like? You know, you're now training as a as a professional athlete. You, you know, there's probably TV games. You're playing against some of your idols. What was your mindset at that point? Um, it was always, well, in a way, it was doubting. You always doubted yourself, or I did as a young fellow. Whether you're still up to it, you know, until you started doing some things and realising that you actually you fit in here and that as well. It took it takes a, a little bit of time because, yeah, when you watch rugby league and you support it, followed it like I did, I knew everybody from the 23s right through. So, like, them blokes, I've seen them playing for Australia and next minute they're blokes you actually mark. And, like, I remember one game, I marked Wally Lewis, like the king. You're thinking, yes, and Mal Meninga. I've marked both of them, like, opposite... Five eight, and I played in the centres once against Mel, and you're just thinking, I hope that Blake this doesn't want to. You play, he's watching me in Origin and for Australia, and that just destroying teams or Blake opponents, and here I am marking them. But actually, on them days against Wally, I scored a couple of tries and we beat him. And Mel, I always remember that he wasn't in one of them angry moods that day where he just wanted to run over the top of people, and I actually didn't go too bad against them both. Yeah, but it took a while. It does take a while before you realise that. You can you're just as good as them, or you can match up against them anyway. Did you find your game stepped up when you played against some of those big names, well, or were you a bit intimidated? Uh, definitely, you had to step up because you know that they could actually make a make you look real, real bad, mate. Yeah, if they wanted, as I said, if Mal wanted to run over the top, of me he probably could have. But I just was glad in that day game he wasn't in an angry mood, or you know what I mean. But yeah, you, you knew you had to step up because it's the same thing. You don't want to let your teammates. You don't want to be, there's nothing worse than being the bloke who they ran over the top of to score that try or they did it a couple of times and made a fool out of it. And then you're also worried about keeping your spot as well. In those first couple of years at Parramatta, who, who did you learn the most from? Did you have any kind of mentors? Yeah, Brett Kenny. Yeah, so um, as I said, I played 5-8 all my life. Um, when I got to grade, I, I got to about 16, 17, or no, it was probably 15, 16, where I realised I was fast. Once I hit puberty, coming out of puberty, and I was a late developer, just like probably my son Tyron was as well. He went through the same thing. Like once I hit 15, I was at a sports carnival at school and we're in the 100-metre sprint and I beat everybody by four metres and we're barefoot and they all had spikes on and I'm thinking, wait a minute, this can't be right. So like, it mustn't have been that quick, these kids. So when we went to district, so all the best kids in Penrith 
I got there as well. There, kids there, all with the same thing. Spikes, some of them with their starting blocks. They, they put down everything. I'm the same little black fire with the skinny legs with the, the bare foot. I cleaned them all up there by two metres as well and ran 11.3 or something like that. And everybody's going, oh, wow, this time. I didn't know times or anything like that. And that's when I realised, well, I've actually got fast now. So I've had all the, the skill and then got the pace and then listened, just followed Brett Kenny around at training and that and watch what he did and yeah try to base my game around what he done and as I said it took I, I, when I got to Parramatta I had to play fullback because Brett Kenny's 5'8 nobody's going to put him out of his spot unless he's injured or whatever and, and when I got to about 21, 22 Brett Kenny ended up going to lock forward and I went to 5'8 so it was sort of like a big that was a big thing for me that game against Wally Lewis I still got the program there I was 5'8", and Brett Kenny was locked forward, yeah, so... Did you feel pressure filling his shoes? Oh, definitely, I did. But as I said, because I was that good of friends with him and that, I knew he made that decision himself to move into the the back, like into the lock, to put me into 5'8". So it wasn't like he wanted it back. He was sort of like bleeding, like blooding me to become the next sort of 5'8". Yeah, so it was a good thing. And Glenn, in 1992, you joined the reigning premiers, our local Penrith Panthers. What drew you to the club? Um, as I said, growing up in Penrith, all the... I mean, we watched my brother play at Parramatta for years and um, loved Parramatta, but always did support Penrith as well. My idol was a bloke called Terry Wickey back in the day, so and Ray, my cousin, played at Penrith. So I always wanted to play for Penrith, and it was just a... Penrith always, growing up, we were struggling... We were never one of the teams that were up the top in that, and we only just started coming good around in the eighty, like late eighties, early nineties, and um, we had a change. Mick Cronin left the coaching at Parramatta, and we got Ron Hildage in, and I wasn't really getting on. He was just a different type of personality, and I mean him sort of. Well, they also brought in a bloke called Ron Massey as well, and, and always like, people love Ron. I like Ron, but at that time, I think he thought he was Jack Gibson. And he came in and he just... That's another thing. We're just Indigenous people and players that he did rub me up the wrong wrong way. And then Gus, I spoke to Gus and I, Greg Barwick was leaving Panthers that year after the grand final. And Gus, I spoke with Gus and there was an opportunity to play fullback at, Par- at Penrith after winning the grand final. I grew up with Brad Fittler. Like Freddie only lives lived up the road. He only five houses up from here where he grew up. So I, mum and dad are only just down the road. So we've grown up together all our lives, Ben and Greg Alexander, like with MG, we all grew up together sort of thing. So I thought this is like perfect to be able to come back home to Penrith and play in a team that we should win the next two or three grand finals with this side because they're only young blokes. So we're just, I thought I'll come back home, yeah. And you rattled off some of those names and you're throwing, you know, Cartwright, the Uzard brothers. What was the vibe like at the club? Was it a, was it a team at the top of their game? At the top of their game, but I think... The, what the best part about it was, and, it, and that's what I think the football lacks these days, is that the friendship, we loved each other, mate. Every, like we, just, if we weren't 10 of us hanging out at Freddy's every day on the PlayStation or pool table or whatever it was, we are just real close. So it was like if you seen, if MG seen, say, me get belted, the full team would want to belt that bloke who, who did it. You know what I mean? And I've had this conversation with Ivan and that only last year about we've lost that sort of thing, like back in the day, if somebody got whacked in the side and he's your teammate, but you felt like it was like number 12 done that. So the next time he ran the ball, there'd be boats coming from everywhere to building. Well, we don't sort of do that anymore. As I say, we're cuddling and laughing after games with the opposite team. It just wasn't like that back in the day. If somebody hurt your teammate, that's why it wasn't. What was good about it, and we always say this now, is that that team, most of them were local juniors. So actually, Penrith, you love Penrith. Like people bag Penrith and say, "Oh, he's a Westies and this and that." Like if you live in the city, they wouldn't come to Penrith because you're all whatever you are out there. And where we, do, I, I thrive on that stuff. I love Penrith. Like this is my home, and all them boys are exactly the same. If you played out here all your life, Penrith are usually your team. So when you're playing for it, it's a little bit different to coming from another club. And I, and I say that to these to the club now. Like when we buy other players. It's a lot different to having some bloke come from somewhere else who's just getting paid to play here. But when you actually want to play for this club as a, a little kid and you're up there sliding down the back of the 
the hill there on the cardboard, mate, as a kid growing up and, and knowing all these players, you, you want to play for Penrith. And I think that was the thing. I think 75% of that, both grand finals we've won, have been local juniors. And I think both of us being local, when, when the Panthers are winning and when the Panthers are humming, it galvanises the community oh, like nothing else. Big time, mate. And I said this to a young bloke the other day. He seen me in Penrith and you still sort of get recognised around the place and that because I haven't left the, the, the joint and he said how good are we going so it was excellent he said you can just tell by people are out wearing their Panthers gear and there's a smile on their face and I've got up in front of Cameron Serrato gets me up in front of the boys every now and then because he knows how passionate I am just to explain to them what an effect that they have on the community like yeah when we're losing everyone's down mate like you can just tell when you're walking around, it's just nobody wants to talk, and especially about football because we're not going good. But when we're winning, oh mate, it's, it's like the place is buzzing, isn't it? Like, and it is a good feeling, and we've got that feeling at the moment. We're still a little bit. You don't want to go and talk too soon because you you know that over the years we have uh, had our ups and downs, but at the moment we're looking like we could have a pretty good year, but we are at the moment, yeah. And playing alongside some of those guys, like you said, Fittler, Greg Alexander, what, what were you learning from those guys? Um, well, Brandy, just how smart he was. I, I always say that um, the best player I've ever got to play with was Peter Sterling. He was just five minutes in front of the everybody else. And Brandy, Freddie, blokes like that, that's how they were as well. They seemed to be like five or six um, plays in front of They've already had a set of six in their head what was going to happen sort of thing, you know what I mean? They weren't just playing off the off the cuff and I think like now that's how games go. Like they've already had the sixth tackle where they were kicking that ball or what was going on. So I just learned game management pretty much off of them, Blake, just how to, to slow a game down or just what to do in a game but just so all of the time just sit back and watch in awe, mate, of the different skills they had, like whether it was Freddie with the big step and you've seen it was coming but they still couldn't stop it and, and Brandy with his chipping over the top or just being fast and being able to read a game, it was just good to be able to, to say I actually played with them boys. And that same year, Glenn, the, the club was rocked with the tragic passing of Ben Alexander. Off the back of that, did you lose the de- desire to play or did you, were you inspired to play in his honour? Well, that, that week, um, me and Ben actually got dropped from... Gus dropped us. We played Parramatta at Parra Stadium and we had a shock. Both of us had a shocker and... And at that time, I was living with Greg and Ben. We were, um, Brandy just built a house at Glenmore Park when I sort of just started off over there. And so it was me, Greg and Ben living there and Freddie and MJ, everybody was always always there. Um, so Ben and Ben got dropped that week and um, after the game, reserve grade, you just didn't like hanging around first grade. When you were playing reserve grade, you were in the Reggies and it just didn't feel like the same, you know what I mean? You didn't want to hang around the first grade because... Like, yeah, so me and Ben and Luke Goodwin and a bloke called Scott Murray that year, that day, drove over, went to go somewhere else and we had the car accident and I was in the passenger seat when Ben died and um, it pretty much knocked me for six. I've never been experienced anything like that. I'm diagnosed at the moment with post-traumatic stress disorder from that and, um, yeah, I thought because I'm a man and I'll be able to get over it. Like, I've never seen a dead body and I don't like saying that because I don't know he's going to listen to this podcast but it sort of knocked me around a lot you know what I mean and um, especially one of your best mates as well and it was just instant it just happened like that it was nothing we weren't speeding we weren't doing nothing wrong it was just no seatbelts it was the, the problem none of us had a seatbelt on and we got thrown around like rag dolls and Ben was thrown into a um, yeah, pole which was yeah, just turned my life upside down and um, I remember after that accident, I was at the hospital and mum and dad come there and when mum see me, she nearly collapsed because she just didn't, just because it wasn't me, like, you know what I mean? She was just that happy that, so I thought to myself, well, football's not everything. Family and life and is more important than football, but then that's all I knew. And everybody was saying, when are you, what about your football and that? I was thinking, stuff the football, like, you know, there's more to life than just playing football, that. I'm not, don't want to be just tagged as being a football player, you know what I mean? So, yeah, that did knock me around for a long time after that, yeah. I still had to keep playing, but I still wasn't, I was never the player I wanted to be after that, yeah. And you mentioned the, the PTSD. Have you found it better, and, and would you encourage other people to, to get out and talk about their feelings 
if they're going through a rough patch of, of any description? No, definitely, mate. I, um, as I said, being a, uh, a big, tough football player, or I was supposed to be in that, I thought even myself I'd be able to get over this. And I, and I still struggle to this day with it. It was only just about a week, two weeks ago now that it happened. Because I said it on Facebook, and every time I do say that, it brings back all the memories and that again. And, and for 10 years, I struggled with everything you could think of. I, I was doing just to try to get this stuff out of my mind. And because everywhere I went, that's all people wanted to talk about. And then you hear about stories, like you read stuff on Facebook and that the things that people say really happened and don't know what the truth and just make up rubbish. It sort of hurts your feelings. Yeah. And when Ben's not here as well to, to defend himself and then some of the stories about what I was supposed to have done, I was supposed to be driving and, and got out and put Ben in the driver's seat and sat in the passenger, like just ridiculous things that knocked me around. And as I said, it took me 10 years and um, it wasn't just me who was affected by it, it was the whole family, like my mum, dad, my wife, just to see me like that, said I need to go and speak to somebody. So as soon as I went and spoke to somebody, it just lifted the whole, I never knew that person from a bar of soap, and that's when they diagnosed me and said, well, you got post-traumatic, mate, and explained to me what that was. They explained it to me as in Vietnam veterans come back from the wars and that, and a lot of them have it because of seeing what they've seen and just seeing their mates being killed and things like that. It's not, it's like a disease in a way. So once I realised that, it was not just me. who Because I'd have dreams of going through red lights with me eyes, with my head down, waiting to, for a car just to hit me, and then I'd wake up and... Yeah, it was just not a good time in my life. But then when I got this, the help and that, from that day on, I thought, well, my life now, I want to dedicate it to helping not just other people with that, but just helping people. Because when I'm helping other people, that's when I feel at my best. And it's not about money for me, like a job where I earn. I don't want to earn a million dollars a year. I just want to make sure that I can help other people, especially young people and Indigenous people have lived better lives there. Because I've been there and done everything. And I guess that goes back to your point earlier about growing up for you, the element of feeling rich was having family around. It wasn't about dollar, dollar no, bills. No, no, that's right. And that's what I, I find with a lot of... Um, I've got a job now at Panthers where I look after all the Indigenous players. I look after everybody, but my title is Indigenous Welfare. And a lot of the people say, like, when a young Aboriginal boy throws in a contract, say a $100,000 contract because he wants to go back to Dubbo or whatever, they go, how did he do that? And... Well, I say, mate, for him, money's... He's never had money. The family's probably never had money, so money's not the driver for him. But love and family, that's more important than that 100 suffering to get that 100,000 down there or go home where everybody loves me and we have a laugh all the time and we go out fishing and we, you know what I mean, we hang together and we be cousins and that. That's more than... That's priceless in my eyes and in a lot of Aboriginal people's eyes where I think a lot of the time... And my wife's learnt from me as well. They're money-driven. They all think about, why can he throw... Well, maybe he threw that away because he's, he's not happy down here doing that because all the expectations that he has to have on him. Because these days, to be a rugby league player, there's a lot of... You can't do nothing, mate. And 100000 might seem like a lot to a lot of people, but as I say, for that young fire, he'd rather be back home playing on the dirt fields with his cousins and, and enjoying his life than be down here worrying about how much money... He can earn, and I was been. I'm a bit like that as well. It's not about the money; it's about me being happy. And as I said, I've got a wife who's very, um, as she said, Glenn. Like, I don't care what you earn. Like, it's not about the money. As long as you're happy, like, you, uh, you want to get up every day and go to work and and do what you want to do. And as I said, I started at Bidwell High School in the support unit, and Bidwell High has been rated one of the worst schools in, like, toughest schools in the country. Helping the support kids there, I just loved. Because I'm a bit of a kid myself and I'm a bit of a character and I sort of had them kids going and just teaching them respect and I still have them kids messaging me now saying how good they're going and they're working at the house with no steps now and or a Ford or whatever it is. Like He's got his forklift licence and them sort of things make me feel that I've had an effect on somebody else's life. So. Yeah. That's what it's all about, right? Leaving a legacy and, and inspiring others. I think so, mate. Yeah, It's not about having the big... Oh, I'd love to have a big house and... All that, but I, but I prefer to have three kids who are happy to see dad come home and mum come home. And, and like, I've got a 22 year old who don't even look like wanting to leave home, you know what I mean? We all get on 
he, he knows the love's here as well. So, yeah, so I'm happy. That's what makes me happy. This is the Passion and Perspective podcast brought to you by Sporting Chance Media. For three decades, Penrith and the surrounding community has turned to the Western Weekender. Whether it's the Weekender's highly revered print edition or its up-to-date news offerings through its digital presence, the Weekender truly is the heartbeat of Penrith. Visit westernweekender.com.au or find your copy every Friday. Glenn, you described to me before our chat that for you, the, the thing you love most about rugby league was the friendships and mateships. You're just competing, you love to win, and the feeling of success as a team. Is that something that you had since you first played as a four-year-old, or was it something that grew the more you played? I think as I, as I first started, as I said, I remember the, the main games, the things I remember most about rugby league, and I say this to all these young followers who are playing in the NRL and that now, I don't remember what I did against Wally Lewis that day. But I remember uh, afterwards when we went out and had a couple of beers and a laugh and or on our football trip away at the end of the year to LA or Hawaii or whatever. All them good memories of the rugby league are those ones I spent with my teammates. And you know what I mean? From under sevens, we weren't the best team and it took another four years to, to win a grand final in under tens. I still remember the... Like, you only remember the big the grand final wins and, and that. So then from under tens, it took another five years, under 15s, but in under tens, we were third division. So we end up slowly working our way through to an under 15th. We won the comp in first division. And with that same team that we started off with in under sevens in fifth division, in under 15s, we stuck together and actually won against the teams who we fought we'd never beat, like St. Mary's. And back in them days, Leftbridge Park was one of the big sides who like, would win everything. And the kids looked two years older than what we were. Like, we think, bloody hell, they the first division kids just always seem to look bigger than under 15s. We all come good in this cold inside because we stuck together and we knew who what who did what and some kids got bigger than you know what they were when they were younger and all of a sudden we were winning the comp. So just to have that, to come through of all them kids and be good mates and I only just had, it was me and another kid called Grant Butterfield and Grant only passed away last week actually. He um, died of cancer at 50 years of age and he was a criminal lawyer, and but me and him played all our football together. We made Harold Matz, SG Ball. He also played Australian schoolboys with me as well. He's a brother of Tony Butterfield from Newcastle. Yeah, so just that was another thing that put a bit of life into perspective for me as well. He's the same age as me, and he's got three kids as well. He's a criminal lawyer with all this. I asked his brother, what do you reckon happened? And he said, mate, stress from work. Like, he'd be up till two in the morning working on cases and doing things and that. He said, like, the stress pretty much got him. And then I've looked into a bit of that and people say stress can bring on different things. And I thought, well, it's not worth worth it really, is it? I don't think anyway. Like, he's got three kids now who haven't got a father. And I would never, like, I'd rather live to 80 with nothing and still have my kids and grandchildren than, you know, worrying about how much money I can earn and how big a house. And that's what he said. He was That was the only thing on his mind was, trying to make as much as he can. And I mean, you've got to work and, well, I always work, but I, yeah, as I said, I haven't been driven by trying to be the president of the, the boss of the company or boss of Panthers or whatever, you know. I just want to see these young kids come through and the best part about with my job, when Gus gave it to me, he said, I said, Gus, hopefully I can just feel good. After all that stuff with that accident, that's another story. You want me to go into that? If, if, you, if you're happy to, mate. Yeah, well, with, after that accident, I was sacked by Panthers straight away. So I was a passenger in the car. I wasn't driving, but they sacked me straight up. Never was paid for the year either. So all of it, never got a phone call of Panthers saying, how are you, mate, or anything. I mean, I got thrown through Ben's window and into a, over a fence and had a big gash taken out of me back before I went through the, the window, but never got a phone call of Panthers at all. Like back that, this is like 30, 28 years ago, and got sacked. Well, 15 years later, Gus rings me and says, Mate, I've got a job for you, and I nearly fell over. Because I never bagged anybody, or because Ben lost his life and I was still alive, so I was just grateful for that. So Gus gave me this job 15 years later, rings me up when he got the job at Panther. He said, You're the first person I, I rang. I think he might have felt a bit bad about it, how everything went down at that that time and like these days we have I'm a welfare 
officer at Panthers. We never had welfare back then. So like, if that happened to somebody these days, there'd be that much support for that person. But back then, it was no support for any of us. It was like, see you later, deal with it. You know what I mean? Like, at least send me to a psychologist or someone to, to talk about it where I had none of that. So um, Gus gave me this job, and I said to him, well, Gus, I want to find us the next Jonathan Furston. And he said, Glenn, I don't want that. I said, what do you, what do you mean? He goes, all I want is to show these boys work ethic. Um, we'll get them into as many courses and do different things with them while they're here. And if they don't make the NRL, that's not a, at least they go back home as role models and, and fit back into their community, not as like they've done, they never made it or anything. They've made it, mate, because they've gone back with a trade or they're a teacher or whatever. So I thought, well, that's all I wanted to hear. I didn't really want to find the next Jay. I want them to go back home and fit back into their communities and have other kids look at them and go, I want to be like like him. So that was the best part about this job I've got, yeah. It's, um, you must feel proud every day you go to work and you know that you are making a real difference oh, to these young boys. Oh, it is. You've just seen two of them come in my house here now and it's nothing for them to have a mattress on my floor and have them laying up here watching TV all day and staying here. Because if they get homesick which is part of my job. If they get home, I just say, come home with me, bro, and we'll, we'll, we'll bring the mattress out here, like Tyron will give up his bed, throw it out here, Ty will be laying up with them, and it's like their other family. I'm like the uncle they've got in Sydney, and I tell them, don't worry, you don't need to go home, mate, because like, they always want to, they want to go home because they're safe. There's love, there's, and like NRL, the level that you get to now, you're training every day, you walk in, you get your weight taken, they ask you questions on what your mental health is like, the skin folds done every week. If you're not living up to all those different things, if you go and have a drink on the weekend, well, your skin folds will be different, I guarantee you, on that week. You know what I mean? So if you go in there and you're not eating right and your dietitian's giving you the food because they get fed breakfast, lunch and dinner, a lot of them up there, supplied, so... If you're putting on weight, and just at the moment, Brent Naden, before he hasn't been getting picked, he's put six, put on six kilos. Just like that over the COVID thing, which we all, I've put on about 15 kilos over COVID, you know what I mean? But just all little things like that. And, and with these young Indigenous boys back in their hometown, they're the legends. Because when they play for their local team up there, they just carve it. But when they come down to Sydney, like there's five five eights in your position. And they all look good. They all look bigger than you. And when you watch them train and that, they're probably fit. They're better trainers than all the rest of it as well. So there's a lot of other little things. And then mum and dad home and you've got no family here and you're used to having like mum and dad next door or people around you all the time where all of a sudden you've got no one. So, yeah, I, I become like that, the family that they've got down here in Sydney. As I said, I just had two of them come through here. Didn't have talk. They're out the back with Kelly. She's helping them with their wages and trying to um, explain what different things are, you know what I mean, things that a lot of them have never had to experience before. So is that what you see part of your role is getting them right to be on the footy field, but also helping them with things outside of life, you know, learning about finances, learning about cooking, learning about living away from home? To me, that's more important. If they make the football, that's a bonus for, for me. Uh, for me, it's like, as I said, like Braden McGrady and Glenn McGrady, who Braden was just here before, for him to go back to Tumalai, where he comes from, with a community where your McGrady, his uncle's from, with a community of 200 people and be a, a role model for them other kids out there, to think, well, he's gone to Sydney. He might not have made the NRL on that, but he's come back with a couple of degrees in, um, well, at the moment he's doing one in um, community services and different things that he would never have done back out there. He'll get a job out there because he's willing, because every chance these blokes get, and Dane Laurie, he was here with him a minute ago, they will drive back to Tumla for a day. 10-hour drive, they'll go back there for the one day and come back the next day, just to go home. Yeah, and like, I took my sons out there the other day, the other week, and I love it out there, but there's not much. There's not a shop within 20Ks of the place. So McDonald's is like an hour's drive into Moree just to go and get a, a feed of McDonald's and that, you know what I mean? But they cannot wait to get back there. Like, you, when you go there, you think most people would... Or Tyra never come with me. I don't know how Ty would go out there, you know what I mean? There's no Uber Eats, mate, or you can't even get any phone reception. That's how far out they are, but they, they love, they can't wait to get back out there. So when they finish football here, they'll go definitely back home, but they'll have a few, they might be able to work in the local school there as a, you know, a teacher's aide or 
or the community as a community worker and, and helping the other young kids because, as I said to you when you first came here about maybe help doing a podcast with them, being with me, I'll take them to places where I'll take them to Long Bay Jail and there'll be 400 prisoners in front of us and I'll get them up and say, all right, where do you come from, bud? And like, they'll start talking and now they're, or oh, I just heard by one of their mothers that when they went home last time, they went to the school themselves and got up in front of the school and spoke. And like without even me being there and asking them the questions that I know they're going to be able to answer, where, yeah, I'll get them up there, I won't put them on show. I'll make sure that I know that they know the answers of what I'm going to say. And it just gives them a bit of encouragement of, to being able to, to do that, you know. So when they go home, at least they go home and, because what happens with a lot of them as well, when they come down and don't make it, they go home and everybody goes, oh, I told you, you, you weren't going to make it. You, I was better than him and so-and-so was better than him and they end up getting on the drink and the drugs and just what a lot of people do to stop the, you know what I mean? Like they thought they, were, they come and had a crack, but they didn't, didn't make it, so they think they're a failure, which then you're not a failure, mate. If you go back home with all these other things, you've made it. Because if you ask me now, if I... If you could have an NRL career or do the job I do now, I'd take the job I do now. I get more reward than myself, I think, out of what I do help with these other boys and what I did as a, a player. Yeah. And I guess the measure of success for you, Glenn, is, is like you said, seeing the boys go back to their towns and take ownership and make their own decisions back in their own communities. Is that what you see as kind of the benchmark of where you want to get to? Yeah, definitely, because a lot of these communities are drug riddled. Um, alcohol is a big thing within indigenous communities and, and that and if you can stop them, you can give these young kids someone else to look at instead of the, the cousin or the uncle and I've got it in my family I, I, my family alone and I don't like saying this but we're the only ones who have never been to jail so all my cousins and that have all done different stints in, in jail or been in trouble or been on, done drugs and whatever else it is and I've been no angel myself, I will admit that. As I said, I suffered for 10 years myself and sometimes that's just what people do to kill the pain of whatever it could be, you know what I mean? So, um, yeah, for them to go back and just to help them kids and then for them kids to see somebody else go, that's my cousin and he went to Sydney and he played for Panthers and these days with social media and there's always going to be photos of you playing and kids see that, they want to be like that person. I wanted to be like my brother myself and my cousin Ray so for these other kids I'd rather see them and he's working in the school now so he can be in his ear while he's at the school as well and you never know that kid could change that kid's life as well and Glenn you're a proud Birupai man what impact has racism had on, on you and your family um, as I was uh, on, on me myself I've just seen racism and um so, as I said, with my mum growing up, she wasn't um, allowed to go to school because she said back in them days, that she comes from a small town called Tinga, which is um, where um, Nathan Blacklock and Preston Campbell, so that's my family from out there, come from. And she said a lot of the times in them schools back there, the teachers' kids also went to the school. So they pretty much run the school. And as I said, when, your mum's eat, when you're eating a possum outside the, the fence and kids see that, it's not a... You're going to get bagged. And so she said she fought every day and she just said when she met Dad, she'd have to go to the picture theatre and Dad would have to sit on one side of the movies and Mum would have to sit on the other side. When they went to the local swimming pools, all the the white, and I don't like saying it, like the white kids would go in, Mum would go in with her sisters and brothers and they'd have to be hosed down before they were allowed to go in the pool. And my, and my mum lived in, on a dirt floor. like She lived in a bark and bark huts where she said her dad would make them sweep the dirt floor. So she said, how can you sweep a dirt floor? It's dirt. Like, but still, they'd have to clean that floor. So they were brought up, as I said, no swearing, no drinking. They were brought up different to a lot of what people were stereotypes, what they thought Aboriginal people were like. So it was, it was, um, it was hard yeah, for me, mum. So I've heard all that. And then, as I say, when I, hit Paramat- when I got to Parramatta and started playing first grade, I always remember this. I bought a um, Toyota Sleeker at the time. I was probably... Flash Blackfire, they were calling me, but it was a beautiful car and I thought I worked hard for it and everything. But whenever I drove anywhere with my cousins in the car, I would get pulled over. Cars ripped to pieces, like searched, us stripped, searched. And if I drove to Mount Druitt with any of my cousins in that car, they'd think we'd stolen this car, you know what I mean? Until they got me out and looked over my licence and put my name in the thing and that, and they go, I know he plays football and whatever else. I wouldn't, yeah, I'd be hassled everywhere I went, all because I had dark followers 
sitting in my car, in a nice car, they fought straight away, these blokes stolen this car, yeah, so just little things like that, and as I said, I'm white-skinned, so I'd hear a lot, of, always hear people, I hate the word abo, and people, it's like probably when Negroes get called nigger, I suppose, they would don't, it's just, just a word that doesn't, I don't like, and I hear a lot of people just not talking about Aboriginal people nice, and I've been brought up in a family where I've never seen anybody do anything, especially my mum and dad, and that, anything bad at all. And just like the other day, I remember I went to, when I went to Moree, I went out to Moree and, um, with my cousins, and we went into a coffee shop there, and we seen somebody serve, we seen two people walk out with a coffee, and I don't know if this was just by coincidence, but when we asked for a coffee, they said, oh, no, we're machines broken. And my cousin was with me, and he looked at me and thought, we just, two people just walked out with a coffee then. And they go, no, nah, mate, the machine, no, we've got no more coffee. That's what we thought. You're a fair dinkum. So we walked out. We did. We thought, oh, that. And I can understand in small towns as well, like that, there was a big Aboriginal population that there would be a bit of conflict here and there. But I just thought, hey, if I walked in on my own, would they have given me that coffee? Mate, I don't know. Because I had my cousin who's dark, and as I said, all my mum's family only married other Aboriginal people. My mum's the only one who married a white fella. I'm the white skin, but everybody else looks real Aboriginal sort of thing, yeah, I thought, wow, it didn't, it wouldn't serve us with that coffee, mate, yeah, so I have seen racism, and I hate racism, but I do accept that I don't think we'll ever get rid of, it's just the way, I mean, these younger generation, they're taught a bit different, because I know just with my young father, I see him go up to school, and when he's leaving, he goes and gives his cuddle, his mates a, a cuddle, which a lot of young fathers do, there. and one of them is a real dark Sudanese kid in that, and I thought, well, he's got no, he's not racist at all, right? That's one of his mates. So hopefully racism one day will be, well, what's going on now? We're in the world with Black Lives Matter is a is another thing. And like, oh, if I had an uncle, my mum's brother, who died in Grafton Jail for the same thing, was left in a cell for three days with pneumonia and never was asked, never taken to the doctors or nothing and at 41 died of pneumonia in Grafton Jail, yeah. So I've been, had family involved with all that sort of, stuff too and I figure if it was on the other it's hard to say but yeah when you we went to the coroners to find out about it and that they didn't know who to blame sort of thing so it was never nobody was ever put their hand up and or never said that it was actually the guards or it was a hospital or whatever it was just yeah, bad luck sort of thing so yeah it has affected me in certain ways yeah. And like you said, where we're at in the world it's a strange time for everyone. What, what do you feel society can do better to help close the gap and reduce, I guess, the amount of racism we are seeing. Just accept people for who they are. Treat people, as I said before, you, how you want to be treated. You know what I mean? Like just because they're dark skin or whatever it is, mate, they, they, they bleed the same and they all want the same things in life, most of them. And the thing is there's good and bad in every nationality. Like, just because they're dark doesn't mean they're the bad ones. And... As I say, there's a lot of white fires who are just as bad and there's Asian people who... You come into the jails with me and have a look at the different nationalities that are in there, mate. You'd be surprised all the different sorts of people who do bad things in life. And, and I also say, you, you don't judge people. You don't know what people what's happened in people's lives. You know what I mean? Like, we've had trauma that could happen through kids being... Things happening to them when they were kids and you carry that stuff for life and... Some people, you're probably, you look like you've been brought up pretty good, Jono, and I've had good parents as well. Some kids are not privileged enough. They don't have that. They've got parents who have got problems themselves and they're brought up with, you know, as I say, I had, we weren't rich, but we had love in the family and we always had food on the table. And that. Some kid people don't get that, so you can understand why they might go the, the other way. You know what I mean? There's a lot of footballers who are in that same boat. I look after blokes who, who lies who... When you look back what their life was been like, you wonder how they've even, they're not in jail or they're not, you know, stuffed up in their head because, yeah, not everybody lives a, a good life and you just got to, as I say, treat people how you want to be treated. That's how I, I look at things anyway. That's an important message to share for sure. And Glenn, your, your career, you've had some incredible triumphs and some monumental challenges like we've spoken about. Is there one lesson that has stuck out for you over your career? Um... Pretty much just keep going, mate. You know what I mean? Like there was times there where probably a lot of people might have just give up. You know what I mean? As I said, I was playing first grade football at 16 years of age, earning 
good money, you had for fame and money and like girl, like everything what a young bloke would sort of want, you know what I mean? You go out and you could be getting on to girl, a different girl every night if you wanted to, and that was just through being a football player and but like yeah, I, I really realised that and back then days I would have had a thousand friends hanging off me and shouting blokes and doing you know what I mean? Where now I, I always I think to be I say that family is the most important they're the ones who are gonna be there. When I went through them times with that accident and the hard times, I never seen them blokes. Never heard of them. Never seen them again. You know what I mean? Where I'd take ten blokes out, they'd live with me for six months and not pay a cent rent, or you know what I mean? Them blokes I'd never ever seen again when times were tough. The only ones who stuck by me was your family and me wife. And yeah, so I just these days just think, well, hey, they're the ones you worry about. I, if you can count how many friends you got on one hand, you're doing pretty good. And I mean, I've got a lot of friends and people who I like and that, but I know there's, I could probably good count on them, but you don't realise until times get tough whether you can, or you find out who your true friends are. And I always know that for me, the family's always been the one that I can always rely on, yeah. And do you believe that in life that you find yourself or that you create yourself? And what I mean by that is like, do you feel that, the path is laid out for you yeah. or that you the decisions you make shape where you go? Um, okay, but I think your path's made out for you, you know what I mean? Like here I am playing first grade at 16, grade, I mean, first grade debut in the NRL at 18, 19, killing it and then bang, mate, within two seconds of my life has been turned upside down just through a car accident. Never thought of cruising around in the car with no seatbelts on, thinking I'm bullet. You know, 12 foot and bulletproof, nothing's going to happen to me. I'm like living the dream and then all of a sudden, bang, it gets turned upside down and my life for the next 10 years is just torment. You know what I mean? Like just going through every addiction and you name it, just to get my get through from day to day was just like a, a killer. And then when I had my first son, Tyron, I decided, um, that's when I decided I'm going to see somebody and I've never done anything since. So drinking, I haven't drank or done nothing in 22 years. So I made that decision then because I didn't want to see him see me suffering. And he still has, he has seen me at times suffering because it's post-traumatic, one of them things that will never go away. There is times still in my life that I get a bit depressed and, and down. I, I've got to be one of these people always happy and trying to have a laugh, but sometimes in life things that can't, are not always rosy, you know what I mean? So, yeah, I've... Um, I've just realised... So what was the question again? Uh, yeah, whether the... Is the path laid out for you yeah. or do you make your own path? No, well, you, you can make your own path, but I think that it is laid out because I've been put through all these bad... like The ups and downs. Now I've been given a job where I can tell these boys if they listen, like, I've been there, done it. And I think that sometimes that's better coming from a person who's actually been at the top and been at the bottom as well because usually in rugby league they've always been at the... The top, but when you when you're doing it tough, you actually need somebody there who's been through it and can explain how to get through it. And I think that's where it comes in. As I said, if I was asked now, do I want a, an NRL career or this job? I would take this job every day because I feel like yeah, I, I'm saving, I'm helping people's lives or changing people's lives. And to me, that's yeah, that's what I've always wanted to do. And I think yeah, I've had to do all them, go through all them hard times and good times to actually be able to. Because people, when they hear my story, they think, well, they come to me. You know, as I said, them two blokes will come to me about anything. They're not scared to talk to me about anything. If they're doing something bad or they've been, whatever it is, they'll, they'll, they trust me and they probably think, well, Lids has already, he's been there, done that. And to me, yeah, I went through all those things to be in this place I am. And they weren't good at the time, don't worry. I would wish I could have changed them, but that's just the way... Things happen, mate. I'm still alive and I'm here to tell the story and hopefully people can learn from my story, yeah. And do you often take time to reflect on what was an amazing football career, an amazing life up until this point, and more importantly, amazing family? Do you look back on those times a lot or do you like looking ahead to the future? I try to look ahead, but I, I look back as well because I just think where I've sort of come from and like the times when I was doing it tough and that and how I've come out the other side and, and it just proves that you can do it, I I was invited up to the Glen, a rehabilitation place, only two weeks ago, and to tell me story. And 
the bloke would message me back saying it's like them blokes up there just couldn't believe that, you know, couldn't believe your story. They just thought it was unbelievable and you're a bit of an inspiration to them and there's blokes up there talking how they, they start thinking that they might, might be able to kick their addictions and do something with their lives. I've had blokes messaging me saying, can they come and spend the, the day with me and, and see what I do because they want to do the same sort of work now because I said to them that just because you've been to jail and you've had addictions, that mean I said, you can use that because people need to learn from that. They're the best role models of the ones who have been there and done it and changed their lives around. It's all right coming out of uni and I have nothing wrong with people coming out of uni and that, but they've got no life experience and they're trying to tell people about addiction, but they've never had one themselves. And I think sometimes it's better when you've seen a bloke, like even just talking to a bloke, he's done 27 years jail. So he'd been locked up for 27 years over drug addictions and he's finally come good in his life. The bloke who took me up there, he's he's murdered someone. And he got to the point in jail where he said, well, I want to die in here or actually have a go in life. So done every course he could possibly do, university, every while he's in there. Now he's running the place up there, you know what I mean? He's changed his life. So it just shows people that you can, doesn't matter how bad you get, that you can turn your life around and if I can help people do that well that's what it's about because as I said about them young kids who might have suffered to see to be able I know for all them blokes I visit in jail the biggest regret is not spending that time with their kids and and hopefully watching their kids grow up and be good people mate yeah Glenn thank you so much for an open and honest conversation and for being part of the Passion and Perspective podcast wishing you and your family all the best mate thanks mate Thanks for listening to the Passion and Perspective podcast brought to you by Sporting Chance Media and proudly presented by The Western Weekender.